Alright, hello there everyone. Welcome to the 411 Ground and Pound MMA Podcast. We are your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. My name is Robert Winfrey. Thank you so very, very much for listening, as always. Uh, Alright. On the agenda, let's do, let's do the agenda first, shall we? The agenda this evening, last night, UFC 291, going to take up, I imagine, a good chunk of the time here. The UFC was back in my neck of the woods. They were in Salt Lake City, which is about an hour away from me. That's kind of as close as I feel to giving out my address <laughs> here on the internet. I, I've made no secret that I live in Utah, and I've made no secret that, again, that's my general proximity to Salt Lake. So, which direction? Who knows? There's, uh, I think that's uh, vague enough as a general rule. So, they were back, and we had a pay-per-view card. So, we will be reviewing that as a... Here's your heads up, guys. Um, it's going to be listed here in the rundown. I'm going to talk about some other combat sports stuff from the weekend. Or weekend week. Because we had a pretty big week, believe it or not, in the combat sports world. Not just the UFC event. We had two really big boxing events. Um, unfortunately, neither of which I wound up watching live to my... Shame and detriment. Um, yeah, that burns me a little bit. I'll talk about it there. And I might, I, I'm going to give a little shine to the Bellator versus Ryzen card that took place largely after the UFC event. But th there's just a fair amount of stuff to talk about, yeah? It was a big week for combat sports. And more stuff than the UFC event happened, so I'm going to talk about it now. When the time comes, I'll give you a heads up here. Again, you'll ha I'm doing this. You'll have the timestamps that are in the description below if you want to skip ahead, skip backwards, whatever. So I can't stop you. I just ask that you potentially indulge me. And if not, well, hey, fair play to you again. It, I can't stop you from skipping ahead if you feel like it. And then a little bit of news, not much. Uh, a lot of the news around this last week was just to kind of build to what was happening rather than a lot of forward-looking. We got a couple of fight announcements. One that I might have talked about last week. If I don't think I did. I think the news broke. Like just, It wound up being weirdly... Either right after I got done. Or it didn't quite penetrate the news cycle as I was recording. One of the two. I don't know. But there was one fight that got made that I... I don't remember talking about. So if I'm repeating myself... I apologize for re revisiting this particular topic more than once. Mea culpa. But that's where we are, and, you know, crazy stuff might happen between now and then while I'm recording. Who knows? The world is nuts. The world is nuts. All right. Thank you again for listening. Lastly, before we get into the stuff here, please do interact with the product a little bit. Like, comment, subscribe. Star rating, written review, whatever is applicable to your podcast platform of choice. Interact a little bit, please. It helps. If you've done any and all of that, or you don't want to do any and all of that, and you want to do another thing that might help, sharing is always great. So tell people on your social media platform of choice, or just in your personal sphere of influence, if you know people in real life that you think would be interested in the show, give them a point in my direction. Uh, I'm happy to be a contributing factor to your enjoyment of combat sports. Heck, I'm perfectly happy to just be a... 90-minute, two-hour soundtrack that maybe puts your kids to sleep. 
I've been told my voice is quite soothing to children. I do not know why, but someone did joke with me once because I have data from some of the other podcasts I do. There were a couple that didn't make sense. Like, why are these? You know, why is? Why are these ones getting a lot of play? And at least in at least one instance, I know it was you know like, like six-year-olds, like, like four to six-year-old kids, who just liked listening to this review in particular. Uh, this is a movie review or whatnot, while they went to sleep, and it was just, it worked. I don't know. So, if my voice does that for someone, then hey, I'll take it. I will take it, just anything that I can do to help. Uh, Alright, that is everything on the preamble, so let's get into it, shall we? UFC 291, Saturday. Um, before I get into the fights in particular, we lost one fight. We were supposed to have Steven Thompson and Michelle Pereira. That fell apart because Pereira weighed in at like 174 for the welterweight fight. And Thompson said, no. <laughs> I'm 40. I don't need this. Um, <laughs> and look, I'm sure the UFC was pissed. Uh, my hunch is Thompson's next opponent will be someone like Renat Fakhrandinov, like like some just hammer Russian wrestler. Yeah, screw up our cards, will ya? Don't take fights disadvantageous to your interests, will ya? Um, I let me just be honest about this, but uh, let me talk about Thompson in a second. Let me just, for the moment. My patience with Michelle Pereira has run out. I'm a fairly lenient guy. Believe it or not, I mean, I'm even fairly lenient on weight misses. My stance is everybody gets at least one. Usually it's one. I accept that the randomness of the universe conspires to wind up in positions where you will not... and where you might not make weight. If you do this long enough, I accept that circumstances might conspire against you there are people who go their look. There are people who go their whole careers without missing weight. Bless them. I have adopted the policy that stuff happens. Right? There's not really any two ways about it. And it wasn't worth my blood pressure getting up every time somebody had an issue. I just had to kind of accept, like, yeah, sometimes it happens. So everybody gets one that I kind of, all right. I I keep an eye on it, but I do kind of accept that, you know, it, it's just not reasonable to be totally high-strung about it when all I do is what I do. My patience with Pereira has kind of gone away for a few reasons. One, he, this is not the first time he missed weight. He missed weight when he fought Tristan Connolly back in 2019. He weighed 172 for that. I have lost patience with his antics. He's, which is not to say he's a bad fighter. He's a good fighter. His position here was not accidental. This was a step up for him that he could have used. I, I picked Thompson, I think, but I kind of liked Pereira's chances. And here we are. So I've just, again, for a variety of reasons, my patience with that man has just kind of run out. Now, that's no skin off his nose. He doesn't know that I'm alive. 
but if the tenor of some of what I say dovetails a little bit more towards the stern, that's why. I also, like, the amount of weight that you miss by matters. Four pounds, three pounds for a non-title fight. That's not a small miss. Like, this wasn't Stephen Thompson going, oh, you missed by, you know, half a pound and we rounded up. Uh-uh. You missed by a lot. That's a good chunk of weight to miss by. Don't forget, this isn't the first time that's happened. When he fought Darren Till, Till missed weight. And then he kind of got screwed by the... I thought he won that fight. Candidly. Did not think Darren Till won that fight. Uh, but, you know, I mean, Thompson put out a... Look, it's, might some of my antipathy be based around the fact that, you know, most people like Stephen Thompson. He is one of the nicest guys in the sport. In a sport that is perpetually full of, at best, uh, on the kind side, damaged people on the worst, like genuinely bad actors. And uh, Yeah, maybe, you know, if you'd done this to somebody that I didn't like, would my reaction be as harsh? Maybe not. Maybe not. But I, we are where we are. Like, it didn't happen to somebody I, who I have some sort of antipathy for. It happened to Stephen Thompson. And I'm not going to pretend that it didn't. So I'm, yeah, I'm just not thrilled with Pereira in that respect. I'm less thrilled with the UFC because of how they handled this. So, by the by... The, we, I've talked about this before, I'm going to reiterate it because we're dealing with the situation again. We refer to the pay structure in the UFC in particular as show and win money. That's not accurate. We use it for the purposes of conversation. It is not accurate language. You do not have your show money and then your win money. What you have is your fight purse and then a bonus if you win that is usually equal to your purse. Now, what's the distinction there, you might be asking? It, it, it sounds like a distinction without a difference. Wrong. Your fight money is only paid if you fight. This notion that you get paid for making up, for showing up and making weight? No. The UFC is under zero obligation to pay you if you do not get into the cage and fight. Zero. Zero. And they didn't pay Stephen Thompson. Uh, because the UFC is petty and punitive. And Thompson acted in his interest when his interest did not align with the UFC's interest. And they don't like that. They don't like that at all. Um, I can understand a degree of their frustration, but... Guys, I know how much... I know more or less how much you were paid by the... Who did it exactly? I forget. Um, so, I, so for those of you who don't know, there's the UFC is frequently paid to bring the circus to town, right? And if you ask me how I feel about that premise in general, I don't know, but when I, so when I relay the following story, understand, this is common, it's above board. 
It's not a secret. It's not hush. It's not under the table. But different locations, be that states in the United States, provinces in Canada, cities, countries, whatever. Part of what they do to entice the UFC to bring an event there to drive economic impact in the market is they pay them. They just the the state tourism board, a state something, something along those lines. I forget the exact governing body here than Utah that did it, but and this is not again. This is not scandalous, unless you're unaware of it and maybe are easily scandalized. But they were paid a good chunk of money, mind you, to bring their events, to bring an event to this location. This happens all the time. Nobody should be up in arms over it necessarily, unless you, unless you're up in arms over a much bigger problem than, oh no, how dare the UFC get paid for bringing lucrative events to an area like doesn't that's a whole other conversation but they were paid millions of dollars to bring their event to this location look man you think they go to abu dhabi because of convenience they go to abu dhabi because the abu dhabi tourism board or whatever it is cuts them a giant check they go to Vegas. I don't know about Vegas. Again, this varies a little bit depending on where you go. Some places they don't need to get site fees or whatnot. But anyway, point being, they got a good site fee to show up. Before they sold a single ticket, they were paid to do the event here. Not uncommon. Just saying it. And they also had a downside, a kind of like, financial guarantee by a organization about how much money they could make on theoretical gate sales. Like the UFC was apparently worried about ticket sales, so they ha- there was a group that said, fine, we will guarantee you X million dollars. I forget how much it was. But they, they threw a number, like, okay, however much you sell, if you don't make at least X for the sake of conversation, let's say four, right? For easy math's sake. They said, if you don't sell $4 million in tickets, we'll make up the difference until you get to four. That kind of thing. Now, they had no problem in either case when they came to Salt Lake um, selling tickets and making money at the gate. No problem whatsoever. So it didn't happen, but they had that guarantee. The site fee alone was like, is an order of magnitude greater than what what the show money is, the fight money for Stephen Thompson. Look, they're not paying him, despite him doing nothing wrong, simply because he inconvenienced them. They don't like it. It's petty and a little bit pathetic, to be candid. But it's common, and that's where we are. And for some reason, people still don't quite understand this. Um, what was the other thing I saw? Oh, yeah. I saw a few people on Twitter, one in particular, do the the line of, like, the UFC invested money into Stephen Thompson's fight camp, and I had to pause. Like, my guy, the UFC does not pay for your fight camp. You pay for your fight camp. I don't know how you... Let me just lay this out for anyone who might still be confused about this. This is true of boxing, too, by the way. The fighter pays 
their manager. The fighter pays their trainer. The fighter pays their gym dues. The fighter pays, when I say their trainer, like their head coach, their striking coach, their wrestling coach. Whatever dues they have to be associated with the gym they're associated with. And however that gets negotiated between fighter and camp, that's how that works. But the UFC does not pay, like Stephen Thompson trains out of his place in upstate karate. So the UFC does not send a check to, like his father I think might be his head trainer. The UFC does not send a check to them and say train Stephen Thompson. The UFC pays Stephen Thompson and Stephen Thompson pays them. This is all downhill. Stephen Thompson, he flew out here. Like flights from you know South Carolina to Utah are not. You know, that's not nothing. He brought people with him. He brought a team with him. He paid for his fight camp. And he's just out that money. He's just out it because he was not willing to take the the fight under those horribly adverse conditions at this point in his career. He also brought up that you know I'm not sure 20. I'm not sure we have a steep enough penalty for weight misses. Here's the thing about that. I'm not sure he's wrong, but I don't know what we should do. Which is just to say the following. like Fighters get screwed enough on pay as it is. I'm not sure screwing them more on that area is really the best case scenario. I might be wrong, but I... That's just my hunch. I don't, and I said, I don't have a good solution here. I wish I did. I wish I could come up here and say, I know the procedure by which we can eliminate, by which we can appropriately and consistently penalize weight misses. Some people have floated the idea of starting with a point deduction. I mean, that does sort of necessitate that the fight go forward, which is just kind of the big thing. Like, you're you're gaining an unfair advantage. Now, some guys miss weight after trying to uh, basically trying to kill themselves to make weight, and that I don't know that that happened with Pereira. But I don't know it didn't. So let me posit only the following: looking at him on the scale, my hunch would be he mismanaged something a little bit ago and when it came time to actually cut he knew he wasn't going to make it and so i'm not saying he didn't cut weight i'm saying he probably knew beforehand that this was going to be an issue because i've seen guys who look really sucked out trying to make weight he did not look like that but maybe that's, a, again, that might be a management thing for your career, or for your, you know, life earlier. He might have been injured and that screwed things up. Like, there's some, he might have had some kind of illness. Who knows? There's a lot of reasons this happens. And I am not accusing him of trying to gain an unfair advantage. I don't think part of his game plan was I'm going to miss weight and just be bigger and stronger than him in the cage. But... It is, nevertheless, something of an unfair advantage, size-wise. And I I don't know how to handle it. I wish I did, man. I really wish I did. But at the moment, our only options are punish fighters more on the financial side of things when they're, still get, when they're getting screwed on the money to begin with. 
and I just, I don't know that that's the best solution. It might be the only one we have available at the moment, but I don't think that's the best. I do feel pretty okay saying that is not the best solution to the problem, so. Anyway, that's my preamble before we get into the fights. So we, we lost that fight. Again, watch for Steven Thompson to be out for another, like, four to six months. Then get matched up with a terribly unfavorable opponent, because how dare he. And that's just kind of how the UFC does things. All right, enough of that. To the fights that actually happened. Main event, oh, baby. Something about the state of Utah and head kicks, man. Just something about it, I guess. Justin Gagey knocks out Dustin Poirier one minute into the second round. Beautiful head kick. Um, my hat is off to him. That was a wonderful finish. Uh, this fight was... You know what? I'm going to pat myself on the back just a little bit, if you'll all indulge me. I picked Justin Gagey to win this fight, and... I'm not going to say I'm the only one who did. That would probably be disingenuous. I didn't see... I'll only say the following. I didn't see a lot of people doing it. That's all I'm saying. Um, so, minor little pat on the back to myself. Uh, just a small one. We had a good first round. A couple of interesting things of note here. Um, the big one was Gagey's body work. He's not been a prolific attacker of the body throughout his career. And given Poirier's defensive posture, which does a very good job of protecting his head, it does leave his body exposed. Max Holloway had some success going to the body against him. Then Holloway kind of got away from it because Poirier was countering him with headshots and Poirier can thump. But the point being, it was still, it was an available path. So Gagey actually hit the body a few times here, which a little bit awkward for not awkward, a little bit unusual. His leg kicking game was it was an interesting stylistic choice on it because they both landed leg kicks, but were opposite, were open stance, right? Poirier southpaw, Gagey orthodox. The first time they fought, Gagey just tore him to pieces with inside leg kicks. He tore his, I think it was his quad, might have been his hamstring. Not badly enough to require surgery, but those kicks were hard enough and consistent enough, he actually tore the muscle. Because Gaethje kicks like a mule. Um, he was going more outside. And that requires a little bit more of a switch, either a switch step or a step up. Or, you know, there's a few ways to get, it, to get it around. But it knocked Poirier's balance off a little bit. Poirier was throwing some nice body kicks of his own. Gaethje almost ducked into more than one head kick. I don't know what he was doing with that. Like, that's that's not a defensive reaction to that technique that I have seen very often. Usually it only happens when someone's really hurt, and he wasn't. I just... I don't know what that was. That's all I'm going to say. I, I don't understand that one. That almost cost him bad, but... So I gave the first round to Poirier. I thought he landed the bigger shots, but here's the thing about that. Like by the end of the first round, gave it to Poirier, but it felt like the momentum was with Gagey. He was starting to counter a little better, which was one of the things I thought might work in his favor. Much as Poirier is a downhill fighter, 
want to be careful how I phrase this because I'm I'm not trying to be I have nothing but at respect and admiration for the career of Dustin Poirier so keep that in mind when I say the following while he's a downhill fighter he tends to excel either when he's got you hurt or when he's able to um he's able to induce your reaction it's a little bit a little bit like how connor fights if you watch the best of connor mcgregor he's a he's a pressure counter fighter he pressures you forward and he has a couple of techniques that he pokes at you with to get you to do something and then he counters you and it's a when you when you can do that you are a handful poirier can do that um he's good about keeping his head in a fire that's the other thing about poirier though he likes a he does not like put it this way he does not excel in a measured fight He's not always the best in the chaos. Like, things can get too chaotic for him on occasion. But look at when he's doing... Look at when he's struggling. And look at the fights that he comes back. And let me give you an example. His absolute war with Dan Hooker. When that's a methodical fight, Hooker's winning. When it's... When it's a little bit faster paced, when it's a little... He lives on that edge, man. He lives on... He's able to live on that edge between the wild, chaotic, anything-goes Tasmanian devil, because he doesn't do very well there. And he's not... He's not that he can't win the very methodical fights, but that's not where he's at his best. Riding that edge with a bent towards him being more methodical and you being a little more chaotic... When he gets that, when he's able to force the fight to be on that term, he is unbelievable. And he's good about forcing that. As a general rule, if you want to be very methodical and he doesn't, he's actually pretty good about trying to force you out of that. And then you overcorrect into the wildness and he's still there in his zone. And that's when he makes you pay. Um... Same kind of thing with the Max Holloway fight. Like, he he needed to break that from being fully methodical because Max Holloway is ex- that's where Max Holloway like lives. High-paced, methodical, high-volume fights. Like that's what Max Holloway does best. It's actually how Volkanovski kind of screwed with Max Holloway. He kept it he kept it methodical, but he slowed everything down. By taking away some of the volume and pace that Holloway needs to really excel, he, uh, and there's a lot of ways he did that, that's a whole other topic, but it depressed Holloway's efficacy. Something similar was going on here, very different styles, but Gagey not engaging in a brawl, like not being wild, being a bit more measured, he got, I mean, he got hit and he got hurt a couple of times, but he kept his cool, fired back enough to get Poirier to stop you know, pursuing him necessarily, 
but never really got into a firefight with him necessarily. And then we get to the sec to the second round, and he lands uh, this really nice... He'd thrown the head kick a couple of times in the first. It was blocked each time. Third round, he finally gets it, and there's a few things here. Gagey's body attack was usually a right straight to the body, and then he'd come up with a left hook behind it. Classic combination. Works for a reason. Didn't completely work here, because Poirier is obviously an exceptional fighter, but you could see what it was doing. And the, it leads to this finish in the following way. Gagey goes to throw the right hand, and Poirier drops his lead hand, I think expecting the body shot. It's not like dropped completely, but he starts swiping, looking to kind of parry. His left hand is still up by his head, but there's two things that go into this kick landing the way it does and scoring the knockout. First one is only one hand up is never ideal. You want to, you need a hand there to help try to redirect the force instead of letting it just continue. Because if all you do is put your hand up and then get hit, all you, at best case scenario, take one of those like focus mitts, duct tape it to your head and then let somebody kick you as hard as they want. Like It's better than full on bone to your skull, but it ain't great. The other thing that worked in Gagey's favor was the distance. Commentary talks occasionally about um, Gagey's hip dexterity. Because he is able to get some serious whip and velocity on his leg kicks in close proximity, almost from an infighting position in boxing. And it's true, he does. Here's the other thing about that. That works going high, too. Um, as a man with somewhat immobile hips who's been working really hard and trying to fix that, I would like to be able to kick consistently above my head at some point. <laughs> Um, he can get that thing up there. And if if you look at the finish, if Gagey's back, like, two inches, the bulk of that contact is his foot onto the hand and glove, and it's still not great. I'm sure that still would have, you know, not been a fun feeling. But because he's cl as close as he is, like, the foot and part of the ankle get around behind the blocking hand, and crack Poirier kind of behind the ear. Being able to throw that kick with that power at that distance is really rare. A lot of people need space for their head kicks. Dude, Gagey was close. He was real close for that one. And so naturally, they kind of played this opposite the Leon Edwards head kick from last time because somehow Basic fundamental techniques become, people forget about them. So they immediately like, oh, this is, uh, isn't this revolutionary? You throw the power hand and then the power leg behind it. Like, no, this is not revolutionary. This has been true forever. Like when people talk about the southpaw double attack in kickboxing, that's what it is. Robert Whitaker throws this thing all the time. Now, granted, usually into closed stances, but one of Whitaker's best combinations is that one-two head kick. There was a French kickboxer whose last name I can never pronounce appropriately. I want to say it was Theriot. Um, T-H-E-R-R-I-U-L-T? You can look him up if you like. I'm sure you're autocorrect. If you just do Google that, like, kickboxer, you'll get it. That was his thing. Made it famous. Just, you know, one-two, head kick comes behind the punch. 
somehow this is novel in MMA, despite it having been used in MMA for a long time. But oh, here we are. People are weird. People forget, I suppose. But it's, in open stances, it's kind of a classic. You throw the power hand. You've either conditioned them to expect it to the body, which is kind of what Gagey had done here, or it just gets them to slip, and because you're open stances, they tend to slip into the side you're kicking. That's what happened to Usman when Leon Edwards had kicked him. He was just slipping that punch. Opposite stances, he should have slipped inside instead of outside. He slipped outside, head kick came up behind it, boom. Now, Poirier wasn't slipping, but the same principle, right? If he's got both hands up, maybe that doesn't happen the same way. Lead hand drops, looking to parry a punch he thinks is coming low. Turns out it's coming high. Only one hand up at that range. Not enough. And he drops. Gagey wins. Herb Dean comes in. Herb Dean with like the baseball slide, feet first in to break this up. Almost <laughs> looks like he dropped an elbow on. <laughs> Poor Dustin Poirier. Um, gets head kicked, and then Herb Dean with the people's elbow. Uh, it's kind of a gag there. Just poor guy. Um, not the action hero classic their first one was, but a really good little six-minute fight. Um. Yeah, man, this version of this version of Gagey is a tough out. He's he's still kind of dialing in, I think, in some respects. He started a little slower against Fiziev than he normally does. Here, he but he didn't have a slow start. Here, he had a. I think he both started slow against Fiziev, and the way Fiziev fights kind of helped him start slower. Here, I think it was a lot more strategic to just kind of, all right, we have our setups, make reads and get setups early, and then it pays off, and it paid off. Um, don't know what's next for Poirier. You know, the, these two guys, man, Poirier in particular has been in the trenches. This is the first time he's been stopped with strikes since, what, Michael Johnson did it to him in, what was it, 16? Look this up. So, Oliveira was submission, Khabib was... Yeah, Michael Johnson in September of 2016 was the last time he was stopped with strikes. That is... That tell, and look at some of the fights he was in, man. Poirier was in some wars, and Gaethje just... Just caught him. Hit it just right. Uh... So I don't know what's... Poirier said after the fact, like, I'm at a position in my career where I'm not interested in just fighting up-and-comers. I'm... And I don't blame him. You know, is there... Dude, is there anybody whose credentials are more bulletproof than Dustin Poirier? Like, the only guy stop... The only guys that stopped him from being champion were Khabib and Charles Oliveira. And frankly, he had success against Oliveira. Not as much against Khabib, but even then, it's not like he was completely run over by Khabib. Had a few moments. Just a bad matchup stylistically. More so than Oliveira. In a lot of ways, but... Uh, he was For this fight, he was wearing the uh, the Marvin Hagler hat, right? The red hat with war w written on it and why he wore ahead of that Hagler 
prominently wore in the lead up to his fight with um, with Tommy Hearns, which any excuse to tell you people to watch Hagler Hearns, any excuse. What a miraculous action fight that is for as long as it lasts. Um, but there's only a handful of people in MMA at all who get to wear that hat. Dustin Poirier is, in fact, one of them. So, I don't know exactly what's next for him. After the fight, Gage, he said, you know, I, he wants to be champion. Like, everybody kind of, you know, wants to be champion, but Gagey is like, no, I want to be champion. Because um, he was asked after the fight about it, like, you know, would you rather fight? Because we know that Charles Oliveira and Khabib, uh, Khabib and Islam Makashev are going to fight in October. And he had two different sound bites about this, both of which I appreciate. One is, yeah, I'd love to get in there with Islam and prove that he's not Khabib. Fair enough. <laughs> but he also would like a rematch with Oliveira because, you know, Oliveira beat him and he'd like to get that one back. It taking that long, you know, that probably is not a fight that would happen this year. He'd be out the rest of the year and it with that other fight happening in October, we're probably looking at, what, March? March or April of 24, give or take? Something like that? Um, so I don't know if he's going to want to wait that long, but who knows? We'll see. Um, predictably, and I mean predictably, guess who got on the old X machine, or Twitter, formerly Twitter, and did the I'll slap you around bit. Old Cokie McGee up there, Conor McGregor, did the, you know, Justin, I'll I'll slap you around. Props to Michael Chandler with the appropriate response. Just quote tweeted him and said, you know, Conor, just piss in the cup. This isn't that hard. Um, Dude, I also got to tell you this, man. When, because, you know, Conor tweets and a million clickbait articles are just generated instantly. Somebody asked, Gagey was asked about this at the post-fight presser, and he no-sold it beautifully. Just could not care less about what Conor McGregor says. Says, nah, I don't care. <laughs> what do you mean you don't care? Nah. Look, Conor can say what he wants to say, and, you know, I'm, I've just never taken steroids, and I'm not going to fight someone who is. <laughs> um... Yeah, my Connor's another one of those people who I have just my patience with him is exhausted. It's just I've long since stopped caring about anything he says because it was every fight, right? You you might remember this, people. For a while, it was every big event. There was some lightweight or welterweight or whatnot who Connor would tweet about after they won, and. It never meant it never meant anything. It never led to anything. Now, dude, you, there's this whole seat re, season of the reality show designed to get you to fight Michael Chandler, and it's not going to lead to anything. Nobody cares. So, Gagey just ign essentially ignoring him and his quasi like look at me look at me stupid dance like <laughs> good on you man that amuses me 
yeah, so Gagey against I I didn't hate his chances against Oliveira the first time. Not sure I'd love them a second time, but I don't hate them. I honestly would not hate him and Makashev because you know, I've talked about the comparisons before. Islam Makashev is not Khabib. Uh, not at all in many respects. Gaethje and Makashev is a... That's an interesting proposition. I'm still not sure I'd pick Gaethje, but... Islam is very defensive. Uh, to his credit, like he, the amount of people who actually land offense on Islam Makashev is very low. Like, I, I give him a ton of credit for that. I know that Alexander Volkanovsky skewed his numbers a little bit, but if you look at them going into that fight with Volk, like it was absurdly low. Even an offensive dynamo like Oliveira never got anything going against him. But his offensive work, his offensive takedowns are not the same. His, I've talked about this before, like his his whole philosophy on the ground is different than Khabib's. I'm not saying he would, again, not saying which way I'd pick. I'm saying if it was still Khabib, I wouldn't be all that interested in a rematch. I am interested in Gaethje and, and uh, Makashev. So. Probably going to be fighting for the belt next. Um, this had the pointless, like, BMF thing attached to it that no one cares about. Um, good main event, stellar knockout. Uh, knockout of the year contender. Don't know where it'll wind up eventually, but big-time contender. Uh, these, the... I don't know that we'll ever get a trilogy out of these two, listening to how they were talking after the fact. Gaethje kind of said, like, I don't feel the need to do this again, unless it's something you think you need, and Poirier seemed a little noncommittal about his immediate future. And I don't blame the guy. Like, you just... Like, he's still got stuff to sort out. Let him sort it out. You know, th this is not a man whose tough guy, bona fides, can be in any way impeached. He's got to figure this stuff out with his wife and his kids and everything else he's doing. What he wants to do next, fair enough. Um, and both these guys just class acts towards each other. And it was nice to see. It was real nice to see. Alright, uh, the co-main event was a bit of a letdown, but uh, Alex Pereira defeats Jan Blahovic via split decision, 29-28. I was pretty easy... Doing it live, I was pretty easily for Pereira. I've heard the arguments for Blahovic... So the arguments go like this. Like, round one is Blahovic. That's not really close. He caught a leg kick, got a takedown... Had, had the back for the most majority of the round. Never got, you know, didn't do gobs of damage. Didn't get all that close to a submission, but had the back for like three plus minutes. Like, that's a lot. Won the round. Blahovic slows in the second round pretty visibly. Can't get a whole lot going. Second round goes to Pereira. Your swing round is the third round, where Blahovic is still gassed. Pereira's offense slows a lot in the third, though. Like, he was landing some pretty good punches in the second. Not as much in the third. He was still landing leg kicks, and oh, good grief, Pereira. Like, I've, we've talked about this before, that like Jan Blahovic is made out of metal. But you want to kick his legs, he will just turn his shin out or in appropriately, go bone on bone with you, and say, you'll break first. And he's got good leg... They were trading leg kicks, but... 
Pereiros were working better for a couple of reasons. One was the timing. He actually got this very quickly. Not terribly surprising. But he was landing a lot of those as Blahovich was stepping. It's so like either right before or right after weight goes onto that foot, boom. And that stopped Blahovich. Because if you watch Blahovich when he fights other guys who are noted leg kickers, um, you know, he's, he checked like everything Adesanya threw at him. Um, Pereira, a little bit different range, a little bit different timing, and that made a big difference there. Pereira's jab was another big story. Um, worked body and head very effectively. Again, the third round is just Pereira is kind of sniping with some of these like leg kicks and jabs without putting big combination work together. Blahovich throws a couple of blitzes with bigger, like more attempts, but just nothing on his punches. He's gassed. So I was like, it comes down to a little bit like how do you weight each of those things? And then with like 40 seconds left, Blahovich gets a takedown and hangs out in guard for, again, like 40 seconds, not doing much. I don't have a problem giving it to Pereira. I don't think it's... Blahovich came out after the fact. Like, I got robbed. He didn't get robbed, man. I'm, there's an argument for Blahovich winning the third round. There is. I'm not going to pretend there isn't. It's just one of those fights where you don't get to cry robbery. Sorry. Close fight. Close fights can go either way. If I don't know what made him be so tired. I don't know if it was... Some of the stuff Pereira was doing, I'm sure that didn't help. I don't know if he was just not prepared for altitude. Like, he was one of the few guys from what we saw, by the way, by the by, last night, only two decisions in the entire card. Anybody who came, uh, we had some fights go a little bit later than others, but felt a little bit like um, Some of those guy- fighters were like, you know what, the altitude sucks, and which is weird because you know Salt Lake is not as high as Denver. I've said this before too. Like I think technically I live at higher elevation than Salt Lake. When you technically, I know I used to for sure. Um, depending on where other places I've lived in Utah, it used to be a lot higher. So I know like, but you know, I also live here, so the elevation doesn't kill me. But there were some fighters that were like, yeah, let's just. I don't want to do this for too much longer. Let's just try and get out of here as quick as possible. We'll get to that one in particular in a minute or two. But Blahovich, um, yeah, he, dude, he gassed. He, he should be very, it's weird to say this, but he should be very grateful in some respects. This was not for the title because it would have been five rounds. He would not, I do feel confident in the following. The way they were looking at the end of the third, he would not have seen the scorecards with two, of two more rounds with Pereira. That I do feel confident in. If they rematch down the line, maybe it goes differently. But last night, that would have gone bad for him. So, light heavyweight is a, it's a shambles. No one knows what's next. We're still waiting on the exact timetable for Yuri Prochka's return. We don't know when Jamal Hill might be coming back. Who had the... Hill's tweet about, I can't wait to be back. These are, you know, puppies that are going to be in there with a lion. Like, I respect the competitive spirit, my man. I really do, but... There's only so much 
trash talk you're allowed from the sidelines. Especially when we all saw how you were living. I'm not saying you were going to lose that belt the first time you had to defend it. I am saying you were enjoying that title life and your waistline was showing it. Maybe you could have got it back under control with a fight camp and you know, announcements. I'm not saying you deserve to be injured either like, at all, but. He did not look like a light heavyweight at some of those, like, glamour, at some of the, like, uh, events he was at or whatnot. He, <laughs> that was not, that was not a man living a disciplined life at that particular point in time. Again, could he have got it under control? Yes. Yes, he could have. But, yeah, the division in general, so we don't know his return. Um, we're not, again, we don't have specific dates for Yuri Prohachka. We've got, you know, Rakich maybe coming back from his knee injury in the near future. You had this kind of lackluster fight. You had the draw with Blahovich and Ankolaev. Who knows? It, it ta- shut the division down. Like, just clo- close down light heavyweight for 18 months. Come back with a better plan. <laughs> Take a sabbatical. Um, yeah. That said, man. Um, there, it does have to be acknowledged, Alex Pereira did what Israel Adesanya did, moving up in weight, fought the same guy, and he won, whereas he didn't. Oh, uh, Izzy was salty after this one. Um, a couple of tweets that were just like, just shots at Pereira, like, and I get that those two are just... They're taking that to the grave. Like that, that's just one of those acrimonious things that is never going to be settled this side of the veil. It's just not. But you know, Pereira doing what Adesanya tried to do <laughs> and actually doing it, um, there's some amusement to be had there, I suppose. So, dude, Izzy might follow him up to light heavyweight. It's a it's a real possibility. We'll have, to, we'll have to see about that, but it he might he very well might. Um, but you could throw Pereira into a title fight next. He just beat a former champion. He is a former champion from the lower weight class. Other thing about that man, he was bigger. Like Pereira was bigger than Blahovich. I've seen crazier weight cuts than Pereira to 185. You all may not remember this, but I was around for the time period when Anthony uh, Anthony Johnson fought at welterweight. If your immediate response to that is, wait, you mean the guy who fought at heavyweight and then at light heavyweight and had a good run? Yeah, that guy. I, his early UFC career is at 170 pounds. So I've seen crazier weight cuts necessarily than Pereira to middleweight. But good grief, he filled out at light heavyweight a lot. He was bigger than, again, bigger than Blahovich. Someone on Twitter was joking that, like, is there a genetic condition with Pereira where no matter who he's standing next to, he looks bigger? It doesn't seem to matter. Like, put him next to Brian Shaw or something. And, like, I am I feel like Pereira would look bigger. <laughs> I mean, he was... It's just... It's weird, man. 
big guy. Just a big guy. So, he might be fighting for the belt next. I expect Blahovich to rebound well enough with his next fight. I don't think he's done. He was just... He was not adequately prepared for some of the realities of this fight. And that kind of bore itself out. And you still could make the argument he won. I disagree with you, but I don't think it's crazy. Uh, moving on. Derek Lewis. He stops Marcos Rogerio de Lima in 33 seconds. Came out through a flying knee that partially landed. In addition to kind of landing on the chin, it really off-balanced de Lima. So, Lewis gets on top, lands punches, gets to the mount, lands punches, Pereira gives up his back, he moves to the right, lands punches, the ref steps in. Derek Lewis's fight celebration consisted of removing his fight shorts, doing the DX crotch chop, dancing, removing, walking around the cage, swinging his shorts overhead like a, like a towel, Removing his athletic cup and throwing it into the crowd. Gross. Removing his gloves and throwing them into the crowd. Less gross. Putting his fight shorts back on. Thankfully, he was wearing underwear. And in the interview with Joe Rogan, then asked about the flying knee, said, and I apologize for my language, I'm going to quote, Hell no, nah, I didn't plan it. I figured I'd just throw some bullshit out there, see if it landed. And it did. He did not plan his fight celebration. He said, quote, You know, Joe, sometimes your dick just has a mind of its own. Close quote. And he closed by promise, by warning his wife that he was going to come home and they were gonna... I'm not gonna quote him here. Not because it's unduly, like, profane. It's just... I don't feel comfortable quoting... Someone's declaration of intimate intent to the degree that he did. The closest I get is Brock saying I might even get on top of my wife. That's as far as I go. He, Lewis went a little further with warning. His, he warned his wife, man. I, what's coming? <laughs> this sport, this pseudo sport is nowhere else. Nowhere else would any of that happen. Nowhere else. But here. Here it did. In the world of mixed martial arts. Derek Lewis is one of one, guys. Um, he needed the win badly. He got it. Um, he had some abs at the uh, at the weigh-in. So he's... If he can... I don't think he's ever going to be champion. But if he can kind of sort out some of his like mental and discipline issues... He's only 38. Um, I don't think we've seen the last of him necessarily. He's still, he extended his record for the most knockout wins in the UFC. He's got 14 of them now. You know, you just kind of get what you get with Derek Lewis, I guess. Uh, lightweight, oh, this made me sad. So, Bobby Green defeats Tony Ferguson via technical submission. Arm triangle choke put Ferguson to sleep. 454 of the third. Incidentally, if you bet Bobby Green to win by submission, you got a payout in the neighborhood of somewhere like plus 900. If you bet specifically the third round, it was even higher. 
I actually know someone who bet green via via sub. Not round specific, but I I, I know somebody who's yeah. I bet Bobby Green to win by sub, and he said after the fact like I didn't deserve to win that one. It was just kind of a flyer. Um, how did the fight go? Tony Ferguson's in this weird spot. And it's hard to fully quali- quantify this, so hear me out for a sec. His skills are not gone, and his competitive fire is not gone. Like, he wasn't out here being a punching bag. But he has irretrievably lost something. His skills have slowed a bit. Some of that's just age. He's 40. The rest of the division has improved. I hate to say most of Tony's success. A good chunk of Tony's success was being ahead of the curve in some of the metagaming he was doing. The constant stance switching, the higher pace, being just unorthodox enough. There's just stuff he was doing that we've seen other people adopt or elements of adopt elements of it. And he was doing that before everybody else. It was really working really well. When the game catches up, that hurts. So that's and there's just. There's kind of an edge that he's lost. And I don't know that you can get it back. I mean, I hate to be all overly poetic. Let's do something like the Eye of the Tiger, because it's not quite that, but... He's not quite as quick to get himself back in good position. He's not as relentless with his offense. He's not as resilient to damage. And... To be blunt, he's started making bad decisions. I thought he won the first round, to give Ferguson credit. Thought he won the first. I don't know how other... I know other people that saw it for green, and I think that's fair. I thought Ferguson's knockdown was enough to win it. Obviously, other people disagree. Fair enough. But the second round, like, he tries an Iminari roll. He starts losing pretty early. Like, Bobby Green starts jabbing him up from either stance. Both guys do a lot of stance switching. Green was content to make sure they were closed stance and just jab him. And Ferguson tries an Iminari roll, winds up on his back, and Bobby Green with just hammer fists. Like, he just postured up. He avoided triangle attacks and whatnot. Just good control of legs, good control of upper body positioning. Hammer fists, a few elbows. Just kind of busted him up. Um, third round, more of the same. Just good jabs and combinations from Green. Um, kind of gets the back standing. Ferguson goes for a victor roll, which is like the rolling knee bar. Never really gets control over the leg. If you want to do stuff like Imanari rolls and you know, victor rolls or stuff like that, you have to get a grip. You have to have some kind of grip. If you don't have that kind of control, you get squashed. And I don't just mean like beat up with punches and elbows. I mean, if you try this even in pure grappling, like go for that Imanari roll and you don't have a grip on the leg. 
to off balance or keep control they'll just kind of sit on you compress you down and then spin out and come out in a dominant position kind of what happened on the uh, on the knee bar the rolling knee bar attempt he went to roll and reached for the leg and bobby green got his leg back and tony just kept rolling because his weight's going that way now and green just kind of moved with him got on top in half guard few elbows arm triangle attack Got he distracted Ferguson with the grip fighting and like how because in theory you're very safe in an arm triangle position if you've got half guard and are using it to prevent them from leveraging into you and you can kind of fight their the shelving of their arms. If you can't, if you don't know what you're doing with again with your guard with your half guard, and if they've got a good squeeze and a good uh, grip position, they can finish you from there. It's very rare. Very rare. But it, it can be done. So Ferguson's kind of half trying to deal with that, and Green doesn't move his legs at all. Like, kind of makes it seem like, okay, I'm here. I'm worried about the upper half of my body. As Ferguson stops using his legs to kind of mess with Green's legs, Green just pops out and passes to the dangerous side, sinks it in, puts him to sleep because Tony's not going to tap. Um, yeah, just, ah, it's hard, man. That's six in a row. That's six losses in a row for Tony Ferguson. I believe the record is seven, with BJ Penn as the record. I think, technically, Sam Alvey has a longer winless streak. Um, but Sam Alvey had sprinkled throughout that winless streak at least one draw. And there might have been a no contest in there as well. But in terms of just straight up who lost the most fights in a row, BJ Penn had seven. Ferguson's got six now. You could maybe look... I hate to say look the other way. That's the wrong phrase. You could understand some of those losses he took on that streak. Like, he ran into Justin Gagey when Gagey was... I mean, Gagey's still... Like, he ran into a, maybe the worst stylistic matchup he could once Gagey had stopped being, an, like, a Tasmanian devil, a buzzsaw. Like, that was just a, the worst possible matchup, and Gagey beat the brakes off of him. But if you look at who he fought next, like, he fought, wasn't it Charles Oliveira after that? Yeah, so, the losses here go as follows, okay? Gagey, Oliveira, Dariush, and Chandler. So just take a second here and appreciate. Like, that's four of the top ten guys in the world. A few of the... Uh, a future champion. An interim champion. A, like... If anybody had to fight those four guys in a row... I don't know how many of them don't also go 0 and 4. Like that and Ferguson had some success in the Chandler fight. But so murderer's row of competition there. I'm not going to hold that too much against him. The problem is in the details. Like Gagey changed him. Period. Oliveira tore him up. Um he nearly broke his arm, Oliveira. 
Daryush um, tore up his leg a little bit. And just kind of dominated him, beat him up on the ground. Chandler just... Dude, Chandler turned his lights out with that front kick. There's a there's just a degree of brutality to some of these losses that's, uh, that just compiles. And then the Nate Diaz fight, which... Weird circumstances about how it came about, yes. And he had some success against Nate. Like, he kind of made Nate really unhappy with leg kicks at a, at a certain point. But he got hit, kind of got panicky, got choked out. And then this one where it's not like he was just blown out of the water. He wasn't. He was hanging there. He had some success. He just... Whatever it is, when you say someone doesn't have it anymore, like, the it part of this is, I don't know where it is for him anymore. It might be gone. And I'm not calling for him to retire. I That's, that's a decision out of my hands. I am saying there needs to be a pretty serious re... I'm going to say something here, and I don't mean to be dismissive of Bobby Green. So, respect to a veteran in Bobby Green, a man who could beat me, probably with one hand. But Bobby Green was a step down for Ferguson from, you know, Gagey, Oliveira, Dariush, Chandler. Green represented a lower level than those guys. And he still got finished. I mean, that was Bobby Green's first submission win in 10 years. Last time he got a sub was his UFC debut in 13 when he beat um, Bobby Volker. Wait, was it Volker? Hang on, I'm looking at Tony there. One second. Uh, Volkman. Not Bobby Volker. Sorry, I was thinking about Bobby Volker because I was thinking about um, Robbie Lawler because he had kicked Volker. Yeah, Jacob Volkman. That was a weird character. Volkman was a weird character for the for his time in the UFC. He kept challenging Obama to fights. Which, my sort of general antipathy for um, American political figures... Means I understand the sentiment. <laughs> I really do, but just a weird use of like his airtime and whatnot. Anyway, Volkman's a weird guy. Uh, weird guy. But yeah, ten years ago, almost ten, November of thirteen. No, sorry, February of thirteen. Over ten years ago, ten and change. Um, after the fact. I didn't, I forgot how, like, combination of forgot slash didn't realize how deep some of Bobby Green's connections here in Utah went. Like, he first trained for MMA here uh, in Salt Lake, like, actually in Salt Lake under Jeremy Horn. Um, Who, you know, if you're a real old school fan, you'll remember Jeremy Horn. You got, um, was he Chuck Liddell's first loss? He might have been. Because he, he caught Chuck with an arm triangle from the bottom and put him to sleep. 
Obviously, Chuck Liddell, very different point in his career. In the rematch, uh, Chuck stopped him in, I want to say, the fourth, but that was a title fight. It was third or fourth. But, you know, Horn had... But he only recently... If memory serves, Jeremy Horn only, like, in the last five years, I think, stopped fighting. He had well over 100 fights under his belt. I mean, he was around forever. Uh, but anyway, like he did a lot of early training here and whatnot, so I, he was quite comfortable fighting here, so credit to him. Uh, good win for Green. I don't know exactly where he goes from here, but Green's kind of an interesting character. He's Again, he's had his ups and downs, but if he's able to really put it together, he's entitled, probably not, but... I think there's still... He might still have some room to go upwards before he starts going down. And kicking off the main card, Kevin Holland with uh, the old Darce choke over Michael Chiesa, 239 of the first. Getting a lot of finishes. Um, Chiesa looked like a guy who had the layoff that he had. When he was out for almost, what, like 18 months... Closer to, two, it was November. It was November of 01, or excuse me, of 21. So, you know, close enough for, yeah, over a year and a half. He looked rusty. Not much else to say about it. Holland hit him at distance, was smart in the clinch, broke it whenever he could, caught him with a knee, Holland noted something when he said that, you know, for, uh, Chiesa doesn't actually respond well to being in danger. Like, if he feels that he's threatened, some of what he does falls apart. I, I think that's true. And he kind of panicked, kind of panic wrestled, stopped on his knees... And Kiesa's had problems with guys who have good front headlock series. And it turns out, Holland, with his long arms, he's got a good front headlock game. Darced him up. Tapped him out. Um, really good win for Holland. After the fight, Holland said that if he couldn't find some kind of, like, BMF stuff, belt, weird that he mentioned of specifically, at welterweight, he's going to go back to 185 because he'd rather be able to eat steak and... The weight cut for 185 involves just more time spent with uh, female companions. I don't know how he fares at 185. I mean, he fought at 185 before, so when I say the following, please understand. I don't know that he's really shored up some of the issues that plagued him at 185 when you consider how big some of those guys are. Might be wrong. I might be wrong, but kind of my hunch out of my hunch um he has because he has some decent wins at welterweight now but oh, that's his career choice so whatever he's gonna do he's gonna do um i don't know how much longer we're gonna have kiesa he's got some burgeoning uh, he's, he's a pretty good talking head he has the analyst desk for espn and whatnot and he's pretty good at that so there's a few he might have one foot out the door and that's a very dangerous place to be have to wait and see as far as that goes. Holland, yeah, curious to see whether he sticks at welterweight or goes to 185. 
I think he might have better chances at welterweight than 185. But again, that's that's just kind of my read. On the prelims, Gabriel Bonfim, good grief. Guillotines Trevin Giles, 113 to the first. Uh, got tied up pretty quick. Got him down. Nice body lock. Um, gets, was it side control? I think it was. Like, gets on top. Giles moves to his knees, looking to stand up. And very quickly, Bonfim grabs up the arm in guillotine. You want to jump for the guillotine, you better have a you better have a good catch around the neck and be able to get your grip immediately. Cuz if their heads if you don't have a good grip around the head and whatnot, if you're not locked in right away, you're going to get punished. He had a very fast catch of that choke. Um his brother kind of sputtered after his UFC. He had the good UFC debut. His brother was the one who knocked out Terrence McKinney with a flying knee. Lost his second UFC fight. Um, Daniel Cormier claiming that this was Bonfim's first UFC fight and I wanted to throw something. No, Mr. Cormier. I know he came in via the Contender Series, but Gabriel and his brother, Ismail Bonfim, both made their UFC debuts on the same card. This was his second UFC fight. How you screwed that up, I do not know. How no one corrected you, I do not know. I'm assuming no one corrected you because I believe that Daniel Cormier is not a dumb enough man to continue making the same mistake after the error has been pointed out to him. But Yeah, that was... I mean, that was almost as funny as... Um, Uh, Joe, Ro- I'm going to talk about the fight in a minute, but when Joe Rogan was interviewing um, Roman Kopilov after his win, Kopilov said, yeah, I'd like to fight uh, Sean Strickland. He's kind of the gangster of the division. And Rogan went, so you're going to move up to 185? Like, no, he's already fighting at 185, my man. <laughs> was a middleweight fight. Uh, Rogan, and- Rogan and Cormier are not my favorite duo to accompany a play-by-play guy. Just... Other people's mileage might vary. Not my favorite duo. Not their worst outing last night. I'm kind of killing them for a couple of things here because it amused me. Not their worst outing. They've had much worse times when they're just chatting. Like They're just ignoring what's going on in the ring and just having like a podcast discussion about something else. Um, I prefer my broadcast to be a bit more professional. Uh, but anyway, so... Good win for Bonfim. Um, he might be a problem for that division. He very well might. I still need to see some more stuff out of him, but through two fights, he's looked good. So we had a catchweight fight here. Vinicius Salvador missed weight. He weighed 128 and a half for flyweight. CJ Vergara defeats him by unanimous decision, 29-28 across the board. It's not a whole lot to talk about here. Vinicius had a decent first round and then just slowed while Vergara kept a decent pace. And then Salva- and Salvador was like, how could I lose that fight at the end? Like, buddy, you didn't do anything. You don't get to complain about that one. Sorry. I talked about this a little bit before, but Roman Kopilov defeated Claudio Hibero. Head kick knockout, 33 seconds into the second. Second head kick of the night. Uh, again, man. Something about something about Utah and head kicks kind of goes together for MMA guys for some reason. Uh, good win for Kopilov. He had a rough start. He started his UFC career 0-2. Um, he 
he rebounded. He's now won three in a row and seems to have found his footing. So he's not going to fight Sean Strickland next. Sean Strickland's probably fighting for the belt. Um, but I appreciate the ambition, I suppose. My, my personal philosophy about this just kind of goes as follows. If you're going to make these call-outs, you have one call-out that's your ridiculous pie-in-the-sky call-out. Then you need another one that's more realistic. That's just my opinion on that, but... Uh, I appreciate how Copylaw's been looking lately. He's he's hitting his stride. He's getting dialed in. Uh, welterweight Jake Matthews defeated Darius Flowers via rear naked choke 237 of the second. Flowers took this on fairly short notice. He replaced Miguel Baeza. Uh, he gave Matthews a few problems early, but Matthews kind of settled himself. Nasty body work from Matthews. He was hitting these net, these really mean front kicks. Uh, really mean. And there was one in the second round not too long before the finish. Um, Flowers complained of a low blow. The ref... The ref halted the action. The replay, it soured things, but for the following reason. So the toes and the ball of the foot on that kick from Matthews, they land legally. Fair blow. His heel, especially on the retraction of the kick, does hit the groin. Fla I kind of said in commentary, like, Flowers is getting away with this one a little bit. Let me clarify here. I don't mean that he's faking. I mean, he was the beneficiary of. If they had called that a fair blow and just told him to continue. I think I don't think anyone would have been up in arms. I don't think the replay would have been like, oh, no, the heel of his foot kind of contacted the cop. He got a. There was a call that went in his favor that could have gone the other direction. That's not his fault. That's just how the ref ruled it. And I don't even think I don't even think the referee was wrong. This was not a blown call. It was how it was ruled. And they could have ruled that one either way and I wouldn't have been opposed to it. So I'm not up in arms over that one. But, you know, Flowers kind of slows as the fight goes on that body work and short notice and then Matthews gets him down, gets his back. Solid enough stuff from Jake Matthews, who... Dude, he had that one killer performance against Andre Fialho, and then... He did not look good against Matthew Semmelsberger. Um, I would have picked him over Baeza. But he and Baeza had some parallels there, because Baeza was another guy who had some, had some hype. I had some pretty decent expectations for Baeza, but he kind of just... I mean, flopped is the wrong word, because he has some good wins, but he's struggled lately. So, Flowers, he might only be in the UFC for a handful of fights, but he... I'll give Flowers credit for this, man. He made this a fight. Like, he came to fight. He faked being hurt at one point. <laughs> that was funny, actually. Got hit enough to back him off, and then he did, he did the little, uh-oh, I'm really hurt thing, and then when Matthews came in, he just clocked him with the right hands. He did the old, you know, call an ambulance, but not for me thing. He, he, I'm kind of quoting Gravaka Hitman here. He might only be here for like three fights, but they're all going to be weird and they're all probably going to be entertaining. So 
And on the early prelims, Erdos Medic defeated Matthew Semmelsberger via TKO, a spinning back fist. And then follow-up punches, 326 of the third. Body work again. Uh, Semmelsberger comes out strong, but then fades. Medic keeps banging him to the body, keeps a decent pace as Semmelsberger fades. Medic hits him with a body kick, a front kick to the body that really gets him backing up and not happy. Medic tracks him down, spinning back fist, drops him, gets on top, pounds him out, fair enough. Kicking everything off, Miranda Maverick defeats Priscilla Cachuea via armbar, 212 of the third. So Priscilla Cachuea finding new ways to cheat. Um, not just fence grabbing, she did that. Not just some glove grabbing, she did that. I, the takedown, I think the one that like started the end of things in the third. Like she reaches and grabs at Maverick's like top. Her hand gets stuck in the strap of her like, again uh, in the strap of her fight top, and she spends a bit of time complaining to the ref like, "Hey, my hand's in here." After she's like, she like grabbed the material and was like. Oh, I don't want to be down here. If I remove your clothing, it will throw things off and maybe give me an opportunity. This is the dirtiest fighter in the UFC. Now that Charles Oliveira, um, excuse me, not Charles. Um, Cowboy, Alex Oliveira is gone. Like she eye gouged Jillian Roberts. Like, cut this woman. Just. Uh, like the fact that I'm not even going to give her the benefit of the doubt that this was just randomness. Like, watch some of the replays. She's, like, grabbing at the clothing. It's... <laughs> Get rid of her. Maverick needed the win. She wildly underperformed versus Jasmine Jastavisius. Much more on form here. Pretty good takedown. Solid top game. Uh, textbook armbar to finish things off, so good for her. Needed the win and got it. Uh, that's the full thing. You can find my full report in the MMA Zone of 411mania.com. Oh, your bonuses. Let me do this. There was no Fight of the Night awarded. And I can understand that. Your performances of the night went to Justin Gagey. Easy call. Derek Lewis. Less easy call. Bobby Green. Pretty easy call. And Kevin Holland. I, me, I would have swapped Kopilov with Lewis. And that's not me saying, like, screw Derek Lewis or anything, but uh, Kopilov's head kick I thought was a better finish than Lewis's, but that's just me. Uh, they were spoiled for choice. Gonna say that, like, two decisions, only two, the entire night. Um, yeah, they were spoiled for choice here, and I'm not gonna complain about it. I just, I would have done it differently, but it's not wrong to give Derek Lewis... That bonus, so. Again, full report, MMAZona411mania.com. Thank you all very much, as always. Appreciate it. All right, um, here's your disclaimer. I'm going to talk about um, boxing and just sort of combat sports in general over the week because we had a long week for combat sports. Let me start chronologically. Tuesday morning, I did not get to watch this live. I was sorely tempted. So... Um, Tuesday morning, I had a martial arts class. That's early morning. I was very tempted to blow that off and just say, I'm watching Naoya Inoue in his fourth weight class. Um, I didn't. 
I did not. Because I am a good little boy. I'm a good soldier. Oh, it hurt, though. It hurt. Um, I have watched... I did watch the fight. Like, I came back home and watched it because I really wanted... Unfortunately, I... I don't mean this unfortunately. Like, I knew the outcome. Like, I came home and I had, like, a message from someone who was... In other conversation, it had come up. Like, ah, nuts. So I still watched it, and... If you had told me on Tuesday that someone was going to... That, um... I'll talk about this fight in a minute in more detail, but... Coming out of this fight, I was kind of... My head was... No, you in a way, number one pound-for-pound pound boxer. Dude, he just won a world title in his fourth weight class. And do you know how rare that is? Like, that's a rare thing he accomplished. Uh, I know that you, there's a pretty decent chance that you listening to this are much more in MMA than boxing, so just bear with me, because I'm going to talk about another boxing fight in a second. That I understand maybe be maybe being a little bit um, you have to have a to really appreciate Terence Crawford, you have to have a refined eye, not that I have the most refined eye in the world, I don't, but if you've never really like watched and kind of understood boxing, what Crawford does might go over your head. I don't mean that dismissively, I mean like. It's okay. If it's not your thing, it's not your thing. But even if your, like, boxing is not really your thing, I implore you, watch Naoya Inoue fights. He is remarkable. Um, yeah, he is... Where is he now? He's at Super Bantamweight. He started at Light Flyweight. Um... See, so yeah, he started at, which is, what, 108? Yeah, so... And he was a champion there. Then there was Super Flyweight, which is 115 at the highest. Bantamweight is 118. And then Super Bantamweight, where he was here, which is 122. And he was... He was undisputed at Bantamweight, I seem to... Um, yeah, he was undisputed. It's a minor disclaimer about some terminology you hear thrown around in boxing. Um, if someone is a unified champion, they have more than one of the big recognized belts. There's four of them in boxing. Um, the the no what the WBC, the WBO, IBF, and WBA. Pretty sure that's it. There's a lot of organizations in boxing, but those are the big four. You win, and if so, if you have more than one of those, you're unified. If you have all four of those, you are undisputed. You have all four titles, all four major recognized titles. You are the undisputed champion of that division. He was undisputed at bantamweight. He again, he was a world champion in all four of those weight classes, all three ones he'd been in prior moves up to 122, and picks the toughest fight possible. 
Sometimes you see this in boxing where somebody moving up will be, well, like, they'll find what they consider to be the weakest champion, which is on an occasion not that difficult to do. You can find guys who hold the, again, the recon- one of the recognized titles, but you can, like, you can find tougher fighters with other, like, with more belts or other belts. And if you just want one of them, it's sometimes not all that hard to find, again, a weaker champion who is more vulnerable. Nah, In a way, went up and said, give me the toughest guy at 122 you can find. Wanted the best guy in that division. That was Stephen Fulton Jr. And Fulton was... Which ones did he... I think Fulton was unified, so he might have had two. Yeah, he had w, the WBC and WBO. He's a super bantamweight. Oh, that's where we are, sorry. Yeah, super bantamweight. And he stops him at 114 of the eighth round the best. And not like a out-of-nowhere stoppage. Like He beat him everywhere. You could give Fulton... I think at best you can give him two rounds. You could... The first round, I think you could give him. And then there was maybe, and I mean maybe, I think it was like six. Was it six or seven? One of those two rounds that you could make an argument for Fulton. I don't agree, but I think you could make it. He was landing better shots. He was outboxing him. He was outtiming him. Constant jabs to the body. Crushing power. Uh, there was a kind of a prevailing thought that he couldn't outbox Fulton, that Fulton was the better boxer. In a way, better puncher. I think he was the favorite. I think he was favored, uh, was in a way. But he was going to be the smaller guy slightly. Dude, he filled out. I'll say this for in a way. If you watched him at, when he was fighting like 108, he has filled out considerably. And he was a little bit smaller than Fulton, but not... You would never have guessed he was making these kinds of like weight class jumps. He looked he looked like he was every bit a fighter in that weight class. And eventually just jab to the body, slide off angle, crushing right hand, drops him. Fulton gets up, but after that, like in a way, just hunts him down, backs him up, barrage, ref steps in. Um I would have bet you a lot of money coming out of this fight that by the end of the week, in a way would have been the would have been rated the number one pound for pound fighter in boxing. And I would have agreed. Like, doing this across four weight classes, going up again to your heaviest weight class, stopping the best guy in that division in eight rounds and not even all that close. Like that is that's it, man. That's what you want. That is that is remarkable stuff. In a way is if you want some stuff to look at if you want some stuff of his to look at um his run through the boxing super series. So this is from 2000 like 18 and 19. Um this so this was um which fights in particular? Uh Juan Carlos Payano, Emmanuel Rodriguez and then Nonito Donaire. That first fight between him and Donaire was like the fight of the year for in boxing for 2019. Um, remarkable fight. Remarkable fight. 
but anything... Uh, dude, that, was that the only decision? No, he's got some earlier in his career. But, like, there's a lot of his fights that are just worth looking up. He is... He is every bit earned the nickname The Monster. This guy, you know, for a guy his size, just crushing power. Got enormous hands for his size. If you've ever seen him, like, without gloves on, just, you know, either doing the fighter pose with the fist or shaking hands, like, he does not have the hands of a man his size. He has the hands of a guy larger and just brutal puncher. He's only the second Japanese fighter to win major titles across four weight classes. Um, it's rare. He is in some rarefied air to to be to do this across four weight classes. It's rare. So he might try to go undisputed. Um, he could. I wouldn't bet against him. Not bet against him against the other guys in that division. Um, wonderful performance from Naoya in a way. Wonderful. However, I can't sit here with a clear conscience and say that I think Noya Inouye is the best pound-for-pound boxer in the world. Because Saturday night, I am so... (sighs) The fight between Terrence Bud Crawford and Errol Spence Jr. was my most anticipated fight of the night. I couldn't watch it live. Because it came on during, I watched, when was it I got to watch? I got to watch the last round and a half. It, like it, it took up a little bit of the Derek Lewis, part of the Derek Lewis, like post-fight stuff. And then the, uh, the, the co-main. So I could have been watching Crawford and Spence instead of, Whatever was going on between Pereira and Blahovich, and I'm I'm mad, a little bit mad that I couldn't. Would so much rather have been watching that fight. And I got to, again, I got to catch the last round and a half. Wound up being the last round and a half before the the main event for 291 started. But at, so after UFC 291 got done, like the first thing I had to do basically was you know, write up my stuff, throw that up, go watch Spence Crawford. And unfortunately, I already, I knew what happened. Again, I had seen the very end, so I knew what happened. I'd seen, like, some of the other highlights kind of come across, or, like, the talking points come up. So, like, I I just didn't get to experience the magic of watching that fight live. And it, mm. instead I got to watch whatever, again, whatever mediocrity, uninteresting mediocrity kind of happened between Blahovich and Pereira. And that's the that's the combat sports snob in me talking. So please don't hold that. On the off chance someone hears this and says, "Hey, you know Jan Blahovich, this jackass was saying your fight was mediocre." This is just the snobbery in me coming out. Like Spence Crawford was a special moment in time, and I didn't get to experience it the way I wanted to. And what I did experience was decidedly lesser than what I wanted. And that's just life sometimes. So, apologies for venting my bitterness there on occasion. But, these two, Terrence Crawford and Errol Spence, the 
people have been trying to make this... We've been thinking about this fight for a couple of years at this point. Almost five years now. The two guys at welterweight, 147 pounds in boxing. Both undefeated. Both the champions. Um, Spence had three of the four belts. Crawford had the fourth. I forget which one. He might have had the WB... The green one. The WBO? I wish to look that up for the sake of completionism, and I, I wish to be accurate here. Um, yeah, he had the WBO title, whereas Spence had the WBA, WBC, and IBF titles. Um... We've been trying for this fight for a while. These two are... They're the best in that weight class. By a non-trivial margin. Very different fighters. Errol Spence is kind of a Terminator. Uh, a downhill fighter. Not to say he's a reckless brawler. But... He has exceptional wrestling for boxing, which is a weird thing to say, but... Knows his way around the clinch... Good jab, fights southpaw, got a good jab, good body attacks, and when he gets rolling, it's just, it's nonstop. He gets close, body work, body-to-head punches, control you in the clinch, spin you, turn you around, disengage, hit you again, barrage after barrage after barrage. And then there's Crawford, who's a freaking genius. I don't know a better way to describe it, and this fight only made it more impressive. Terrence Crawford is a switch fighter, very rare in boxing. He can fight either stance, and he is dangerous from either stance. He learned to fight southpaw because he uh, damaged his right hand at a young age, when he was already learning to box, and didn't want to lose time in the gym, so he just, okay... Keep my right hand, but instead of you know, doing a lot of jabbing with it, let me work on my southpaw game defensively, and I can use more of my left hand. And it it just, it's a little bit like Marvin Hagler. So for those of you who don't know kind of why Marvin Hagler, a right-handed individual, fought most, was a switch fighter, but did a lot of fighting as a southpaw, a lot of his early um, shadow boxing before he found a really good trainer was uh, in the mirror. And because he wanted to look at someone who was orthodox, he stood southpaw when he did a lot of, like, mirror work and slipping and punching and shadowing. And he just kind of carried that over when he started training, um, he started getting with better trainers. So kind of the same, a little bit of the same thing here with Crawford. But Crawford is, part of what I'm going to describe and how this happens, understand that Crawford is, like, he fights best out of orthodox, believe it or not. And then uses southpaw again as kind of a not a gimmick trick. That's a really wrong way to say it, but he gets you comfortable against him orthodox, and he can still put you out from there. And then he goes southpaw and kind of messes with everything you're trying to build. Um, and just a again a a genius of technique, a genius of strategy, of footwork. Um. When was the last time Crawford went the distance? Yeah, he hadn't been the di been the distance since he fought Victor Postal in 2016. 
That's the last time he went all 12. Um, and that was that was down a weight class. That was light welterweight, so 140? Hang on, i got to double check. I want to say light welterweight is 140. Yeah, 135 to 1, so 140. Because in boxing, lightweight is 135. And Crawford has... The Crawford... Uh, I can't describe this adequately. My words fail me. Crawford wins 8th round... 8th or ninth. I want to say 8th, but I might be wrong. No, ninth. Ninth round TKO... You could give Spence the first round. And the first round in boxing is frequently kind of a toss-up. Especially against really good fighters, because they're both kind of just probing, seeing what the other's all about. How are you going to react? What have you game-planned for? What reads are we going to make versus what we expected? Ditto for them. The first three minutes being usually a little bit slower. Usually not always. So you could give Spence the, the first. I think most people did. Second round, Spence comes out and tries to ramp up. That's kind of his game. Like, he gets going, he gets going, he wants to build momentum. Crawford shuts him down in the second round. His jab starts bothering him. Then he drops him. Um, Spence comes in a little bit closer. Crawford kind of blocks a clinch attempt. Left straight to the side of the head. Right jab to the jaw, or to the point of the chin. Drops him on his butt. Remember, Crawford's right-handed. Well, he he's got stopping power in his left hand. The right one's more the right one is his stronger hand as a general rule. So he's functionally throwing a 1-2, but it's a 2-1. And you got to kind of think about it that way with him sometimes because otherwise you're not going to respect or be aware of necessarily the danger you're in from his lead hand. Drops him he just schooled him. This was one-sided. Like, if you look at some of what Bud Crawford does in this fight, it's it's magic. The defense, the shoulder rolling, the footwork, the distance management, the counters. He hit some sick counter punches. The timing he got on Errol Spence. Oh, my. Sublime. You'd think it was accidental if he wasn't doing it as consistently as he was. Um, he drops him twice in the seventh. He gets in, it, drops him once in the, drops him twice. That's a 10-7 round. They could have stopped, the corner could have stopped this fight earlier than they did. I was fine with this stoppage. Um, Spence's face was a mess. Bloodied, swollen. Crawford just. If this is your first time watching Errol Spence fight, you'll walk away wondering what What's special about him? You, The fact that Crawford did that to Errol Spence, it's magic. It's just magical. This was... What's the equivalent? Like, this is Beethoven's Ninth. This is the Sistine Chapel. This is whatever. Like, this is artistry against someone else trying to screw up your painting. And it's still, like, perfect. Magic. 
That's what Bud Crawford delivered. Dude, he walked out of that fight almost without a scratch. I'm not saying Errol Spence never landed a punch, but nothing that deterred him. And Spence's face was a mess. Took a lo- it took a couple of years to get there, to get to this fight. And... One of the few times when it when the anticipation didn't overstay its welcome was close. But we still got these two guys at or near their best. And Crawford just massacred him, technically. Like I've seen I tend to see fights like if you ask me, like, what did this fight remind me of? It didn't really remind me of a whole lot of other professional boxing matches. I'm not saying you couldn't draw comparisons, but to understand what I'm talking about here, this is a little bit like, this looked a little bit like a fighter, a guy who's been going to the gym and learning for a bit against a guy who's, like, been there for a while. It looked like that level of skill disparity, but Errol Spence is a unified, undefeated world champion. And Bud Crawford did that to him. I I don't have words, man. It's magic. Bud Crawford, in that ring, Bud Crawford is a boxing genius. There's not another word for it. There's just not. Um... Crawford became the first guy in the the first man in the four belt era to go undisputed in two different weight classes. Some people in boxing get a little pissy about this because I'm not even saying it's unfairly. You really need to put the caveat of the four belt era onto this sentence because if you don't, it's not accurate. Plenty of other fighters in boxing history have been undisputed even after, like, two belts across more than one weight class. But no one's done it across two weight classes since we had, again, the four-belt era, when you have all four of these titles that are the recognized, like, these are the four that matter. When there were only three, again, you had other guys that did it. When there were, like, two, you had other guys that would do it. Like, that's a lot that was a bit more common, so there's a lot of reasons for that, but... I put. I wanted to make sure I put the appropriate qualifier in there. Since we've hit four belts, um, Clarissa Shields did it on the women's side of things. Uh, was undisputed across two weight classes. Crawford's the first guy to do it, to go undisputed at two different weight classes, because he was undisputed at. Uh, he was undisputed at light welterweight. Um. Yeah, his last fight, um, the one to go undisputed was when he knocked out Julius Ndongo in three rounds. Body, sh- Horrific body shots. But that got him the two belts that he didn't have. Then he moved up. First fight up at welterweight, wins the WBO title. Is a little bit screwed by the, poli- by the, um, the political landscape of boxing because of who he was with, who their broadcast deal was with, and where everybody else was. Still did, eventually got out from under Bob Arum's, dude, there's some people out there being like, you know, 
Bob Arum discovered Crawford. Bob Arum spent the last, like, eight months of Crawford's time with him whining about Crawford, like, not wanting fights, and I'm losing money promoting him, and nobody cares, and he's not a good interview. And look, man, is Terrence Crawford the... Is he the best interview you'll ever find? No. Best boxer you'll ever find. <laughs> Those, eh, the, the weirdness, are, like, boxing promoters, man, I... Not going on that tangent. But now he's the first man to do it in the four-belt era across two different weight classes. Um, again, my hunt wouldn't be surprised if Inouye tries to do that, because, again, he was undisputed one weight class lower. Now he's got two belts at... Um, let's see, was that 122? He's got two belts there. He might be. He might go for the other two and go try to go undisputed across two classes. Um... Man, if you got to watch this live, I envy you. Crawford is one of those guys who we're going to tell stories about. Like 10, 15 years when younger guys kind of coming up, talking about the sport, looking at what this guy did. They'll go like, what was it like to watch that guy live? What was that like? There's a few of those guys. And Bud Crawford's one of them. So there's there was a rematch clause in place here. Spence indicated he might want to. There's some talk about them doing this at 154, um, which is super welterweight. Um, super welterweight or light middleweight. They're kind of the same thing. It just kind of depends on what you want to call them. Um, but yeah, 154 and. Spence has been making noise about that move for a bit. The weight cut to 147 is getting harder for him. Crawford seemed to be amenable. He kind of indicated, like, yeah. The thing about some of... They had to negotiate a lot of the stuff for this contract. Like, they negotiated whose name came first on the poster. They determined... They flipped a coin to determine who got to choose whether they wanted to come out first or second. Um... I think Crawford won the coin flip and came out second. Or Spence won and came out second. I can't remember. Again, I didn't get to watch all of it live, so forgive me. But some of the, but part of this was there's a rematch clause that either guy could invoke. The caveat being the winner got to choose the weight class their rematch would take place at. So if Crawford wants to say, no, we fight at 147 again, if Spence wants the rematch, he has to accept it at 147. If Crawford's willing to say, yeah, 154 is fine, I'm going to move up there anyway, and I'm, then I'm going to fight uh, Jermel Charlo. Jermel or Jermel? One of the Charlos. He was jawing at him at ringside. One of the char- the relevant Charlo brother was ringside for this fight. Um... Crawford might be like, yeah, sure, I'll move up to 154, I'll beat Spence again, and then I'm coming for coming for the Charlos. <laughs> coming for the Charlo at 154. Um, yeah, Crawford's special, man. He's just a special, special... Watching some of his fights, like, that must have been what it was like in the 80s to watch Hagler. I don't just mean that because, like, there's some similarities between those two, but... Dude, you listen to those people who got to watch live the era of the Four Kings. What was it like watching 
watching Tommy Hearns, Sugar Ray Leonard, like watching that live. What was that like? I've never heard anybody say a bad thing other than nothing other than awesome. It was amazing. Watching Bud Crawford fight. It's special. He's a special, special fighter. My hat is off to him doing what he did to Spence. That's your number one pound for pound guy in the world of boxing. Yeah. He's he's amazing. He's just amazing. There's not another way to phrase it. Um, okay, and lastly, let me talk just a mi- little bit about Bellator, because they had the Bellator versus Ryzen card. Um, went a little bit like this. So we had the lightweight Grand Prix in the main event that wound up being at a catchweight. What was that? Oh. Um, Patricky Pitbull defeats... Uh, Roberto D'Souza via leg kicks in the third round. Little, I'm not too surprised by that. I mean, I don't mean to dismiss Patricky, but he ain't Patricio. Patricio's the one that gets a lot of play, and I'll talk about Patricio in a little bit, I promise. Uh, so he's there. We lost some fights for this one, partially. Then, oh, the worst possible luck. So they were going to have a flyweight title, they had a t- flyweight title fight between Kyoji Horiguchi and Makoto Takahashi. Goes to a no contest after 25 seconds. There's an eye poke. Um, I'm not even mad at Takahashi for not being able to continue. It wasn't exactly a, it was actually an easy fight, an easy poke, but that really sucked, man. Horiguchi was looking to reintroduce himself. Oh, sorry. The main the main thing there, like in the we had a catch weight in the main event because D'Souza was replacing AJ McKee. McKee got a pretty gnarly staff infection in his leg, and he showed off the pictures to prove it. So, dude, man, those aren't anything to play around with. Like, get healthy. Unfortunate, but such is life. Um, a couple of things other things I wanted to talk about. Uh, Magomed Magomedov choking out Danny Sabatello was funny, because Sabatello is a Big talker with a boring style. So, Magomedov putting the guillotine on him. First round was pretty good. Um, Andre Koreshkov and Lorenz Larkin was pretty decent fun. Your big upset came... Uh, during the intermission fights between part one and two. So, they had to schedule this weird. Um, you had part one that was Bellator versus Ryzen on Showtime. Then part two was on Fight TV. It was called Super Ryzen 2. And on that portion of the card, um, and you had a few good fights. But the intermission included some other relevant fights. So we had a couple of, like, vacant title fights. Uh, sorry, no, that was part two, so... It, the big thing at the intermission is Chihiro Suzuki knocks out Patricio Pitbull, 232 with a first. Did not see that one coming. I wonder if Patricio might be... It's Losing the way he did to Pettis. There's no embarrassment in losing that fight necessarily, but he didn't look great. Then getting knocked out here, like... When was the last time he was stopped with strikes? Hang on. 
Pettis was a decision. The first AJ McKee fight was a guillot was a technical submission. Um, he had the leg injury. Yeah, he had the leg injury against Benson Henderson. Strauss was a decision. Curran was split. I'm going way back. First. This was the first time he's ever been stopped with strikes. Wow. And I, I'm again, I'm not trying to bag on Suzuki, who's... He's had an up... He's one of those weird like guys who came a little bit late to MMA after having more of a kickboxing record. Um, this was like by a million miles the biggest win of his career in MMA. <sighs> Big upset. I thought that was worth discussing. Uh, you had Tafik Masayev defeating Akira Okada. Anything else I wanted to talk about? Um, feel bad for Dachi Abe losing. Igor heel hooked him good though. Um, Juan Archuleta won the vacant Ryzen Bantamweight title. Good enough for him. I don't have anything bad to say Juan Archuleta, but just a few things I wanted to point out there. Again, that, that Suzuki knocking out Pitbull thing was... That was shocking. That was shocking. Um, but I don't give Bellator a ton of shine here and kind of figured that I ought to since, you know, there was some stuff there worth talking about. All right, thank you for sticking with me as long as you have. We're still going. we got stuff to talk about. So let's preview UFC on ESPN 50. Should be a relatively short preview. So this comes our way Saturday. They are in the Bridgestone Arena in Nashville, Tennessee. Main event. This was supposed to be Corey Sandhagen and Umar Nurmagomedov. Still sad that fell apart. But Corey Sandhagen and Rob Font, I'll accept that as a replacement. Uh, I will accept that. It's a good fight. That is a that is a pretty darn good fight. On a full camp, it might be more competitive. My hunch at the moment is Sandhagen. I was going to pick Umar, for, uh, for the record. I was going to pick Umar closely, but I was going to pick him. Um, here's the thing about Font. Font's good. But Font is Font is very traditional. He's got a good jab. He's got straight punches. He's got pretty good power. He's been improving his takedown game, but Sandhagen does a really good job of like feasting on traditional guys with his style. I think some of that will play out here. I expect a pretty good fight. But I think Sandhagen's diversity and kind of wild, when I say wild, it's actually like unorthodox, awkward. I think that's going to mess up Font, and I think Sand, I think Sandhagen will get him. So I'm going with Sandhagen there, but that's, they got the best replacement of a fight they could. I give him credit. Uh, strawweight, interesting fight here. Tatiana Suarez dropping to strawweight. Curious to see how he, she looks at strawweight. And she drew a tough out. She's fighting Jessica Andrade, former champion. Here's the thing. Andrade is... She's only 31. But she has 35 fights. 
And... Dude, I wonder if her divorce is messing with her. Sorry, Andrade got divorced r relatively recently. I mean, the... But she's been... Dude, how long has she been with the UFC? Yeah, okay. Jessica Andrade debuted for the UFC in 2013. She's been here for 10 years. Over. She's in her 11th. How many fights did she have? So she had 11 fights when she got to the UFC. She's had 35 total. Dude, 24 fights in the UFC is a lot. That's a lot. I I think that's just catching up to her. You know, she's coming off a two-fight losing streak. It's just tough to pick her here. I, I think I think Father Time has caught up to her a little bit. Like, and Suarez Suarez has had her injury issues, but undefeated in the cage. Is she hang on? Is she just returning? I don't know where some of these fights took place. Hang on. Okay, she's. I thought she'd kind of settled more into flyweight, but she's coming back to strawweight. She took a flyweight fight when she returned from that long injury layoff, and fair enough, man. She had she's had neck issues, and those are nothing to play with. Suarez is bigger. She's a dominant wrestler, and that's given Andrade problems. Andrade is strong as an ox. Hits hard, but. I'm just getting to a point where against good fighters, I kind of struggle with picking Andrade. So I'm going with Suarez there. Light heavyweight Dustin Jacoby and Kennedy and Zechukwu. Is he Zechukwu? I think he's in Zechukwu. I, I can never remember how to pronounce his name, and I apologize. Jacoby's had a cuff couple of fights. Dropped a split decision to Khalil Roundtree. Then he dropped a clean decision to Azamat Mirzakhanov. Zechaku won his last three. Carl Robertson, Iwan Kutalaba, Devin Clark. Here's the thing. Jacoby's a pretty good kickboxer, and I don't know that Zechaku will be able to switch gears on him. I might be very wrong here. I'm going to lean towards Jacoby. I'm prepared to be very wrong about this one. Featherweight, Gavin Tucker and Diego Lopes. Um, I feel okay picking Tucker. Dude, Tucker's getting up there, though. He's 37. He got knocked out by Dan Ige. And Tucker's one of those guys who had some hype at one point, and then injuries and layoffs and whatnot just kind of kind of stalled him out. He had that bad loss to Ricky Glenn, too. That was, that was rough. I don't begrudge him taking time off after that one. That was a beating and a half. I'm okay picking him here, but... That guy might have missed his window. Another light heavyweight fight, because screw us. Um, Tanner Bozier and Alexa Kammer. How long has Kammer been out? I know the name, but yeah, his last fight was June of 21. Two-fight losing streak to William Knight and Nikolai Negomerianu. This this is an important fight for Bozier, though. Um, he got stopped by Iwan Kutalaba in his return to light heavyweight. He's 1-4 in his last five. 
He needs to win pretty badly. And if he can't beat Kammer, he should. He might not be a UFC caliber. He might not be in the UFC anymore. Just put it like that. I'm going to pick him here, but he might be in winner go home territory. Uh, lightweight Ignacio Bahamondes and Ludovic Klein. Bahamondes is a fun little guy. Um, three fight winning streak. Klein. Klein's been weird. He's had he showed some good stuff. He's also had some weird losses. Coming off a draw. He would have lost that. Um, Herbert got deducted a point, and that wound up making that gave us the draw. I'm gonna pick Bahamondes here. He's a he's a lanky guy for lightweight too. Like Bahamondes is long. Klein is not. Yeah, Bahamondes there. On the prelims, Billy Quarantillo and Demon Jackson. Good fight. That's actually a good fight. Um. Quarantillo coming off that lot, dude. Barboza, ooh, that was a bad loss for him. I liked his chances in that fight too. Then he just got caught coming in. Um, Jackson coming off that loss to Dan Ige. And good little fight here. I think I'm gonna lean towards Quarantillo. Yeah, but that's a good fight. Uh, another bantamweight fight. Hani Barcelos and Kyler Phillips. I had such high hopes for Hani Barcelos at one point. Phillips only has one loss in the UFC. That uh, majority decision with Harley on Paiva. Uh, Barcelos coming off a loss to I mean, Zumar Nurmagomedov. But he's only one in three in his last four. Losses to Timur Valiev and Victor Henry and the aforementioned Umar Nurmagomedov. I'm gonna pick Phillips there, but I don't I don't feel great about that. I've Barcelos has dropped off. That's kind of undeniable. So yeah, I'm going with I'm going with Phillips. Welterweight, Jeremiah Wells and Carlston Harris. So Wells four and in the UFC. And that uh he beat uh Matthew Semmelsberger. Harris Good couple of first fights, then ran into uh, old Shavkat Rachmanov. Did not go his way. Beat Jared Gooden his last time out there. I mean, I'm not going to hold losing to Rachmanov too hard against you. Like, that guy's maybe an ex-champion in the division. I think I'm going to lean towards Wells. Okay, leaning towards Wells. No, actually, I'm going to pick Harris. Change my mind. I'm going to go with Harris. Um, I think Wells will be too accommodating of what Harris wants to do on the feet. Featherweight, Sean Woodson and Jesse Butler. I don't mind picking Sean Woodson here. Dude, Woodson's a freak for featherweight. He's 6'2". 78-inch, lanky dude. Coming off a draw. But I'm okay picking Woodson there. Then two flyweight fights uh, to kick everything off. We have Cody Durden and Jake Hadley. I think I'm okay picking Durden. He had a rougher start to his UFC career, but... Seems to have sorted himself out. 
And then Ode Osborne and Asu Amabayev. Look at those two guys, actually. Hang on. Um, Hadley is... Oh, yeah, British guy. 10-1. and 2-1 and one in the UFC. Lost to Alain Nascimento, but wins over Carlos Candelario and Jared... Excuse me, Malcolm Gordon. I am still okay picking Durden. But, um... See, Asu... Again, Amabayev... Uh, Kazakh's fighter, 17-2. and two. Making his UFC debut. Good grief. That's a 13-fight winning streak? Let me look at Osborne real fast. Why is he coming to flyweight? Hey, he went 4-3. and three. Was that one? Okay, that was catch weight. That's so weird. I'm. Mm. Yeah, give me Almabayev. Might feel real bad about that because I've slept on Ode Osborne before, but give me Almabayev. I'm not sure how. I'm not sure how Osborne's going to look at flyweight. Um, wait, did we lose the Woodson fight? Yeah, it looks like we did. Sorry, my other list was not updated. Uh, looks like Jesse Butler withdrew. That's unfortunate. Uh, I feel bad for Woodson. Dude's just trying to get paid. Um, yeah, that Kyler Phillips fight was supposed to be Kyler Phillips and Saeed Nurmagomedov. He had an injury. Um, Hadley might have actually gotten a fortunate downgrade. He was supposed to fight Tiger and Bekov. I actually think he got a much more winnable fight. Even though I still, I think he still picked Durden, but I would have picked Ulan Bekov much faster. Uh, yeah, alright, so... That's yeah, that's the card as it currently stands. So Saturday, MMAZona411mania.com. You know the time, you know the place. I will be there covering it, and I hope you will join me. Alright, let's do a little bit of news and then we will get out of here. Well, I mean I'll check Twitter again, but So some fight announcements worth talking about. I don't know that I talked about Kamzat Shemaev and Paulo Costa being made for UFC two ninety four last week. If I did, I apologize. I'm going to rehash myself just a little bit, but I wanted to touch on it. Um, very curious to see how that goes. Paulo Costa hasn't fought a legitimate wrestler in a while. Uh, and Shemaev's a wild man, so... Curious... Uh, Shemaev's looking jacked. Like, some of the po some of the stuff he's been posting. So, him at welterweight. Interesting. Uh, middleweight, rather, excuse me. Interesting, assuming I hadn't already talked about it. If I repeated myself, I apologize. Also, um, the September 23rd card got filled out a little bit. Uh, I want to double-check the bout orders. This is UFC on ESPN 54. 
Main event expected to be Rafael Fiziev and Mateusz Gamrot. Yes. Um, two guys who kind of took a step up and got pushed back down. Gamrot, you know, scrambler, wrestler, heck of very good at both. Heck of a motor. Fiziev, fast, uh, fast striker, very technical, powerful, great fight. Um, approved. Also announced for that card, a featherweight fight between Bryce Mitchell and Dan Ige. Interesting fight for both guys. Ige been a little bit up and down. Um, won his last two, but, you know, had a three-fight losing streak before that. And Mitchell's coming off of that beating he took from Ilya Taporia. It was December of last year, so he took some time to kind of get right. Um, but I'm... If he reacts as badly to getting hit again, he might have a problem. Like, that's what people mean when they say someone doesn't like to get hit. Like, nobody likes to get hit. Not really. But how do you react to it is key. Mitchell did not react well when Taporia started putting some putting some, uh, hands on him. Ige will put hands on you. He's a, He's got some accurate hands, so... Um... Yeah, there's a heavyweight fight that no one cares about. Yeah, more on that when we get closer, but we got some of the car some of the stuff near the top of that card announced, so I figured I'd talk about that just a little bit. Um, we still don't know anything about the October seventh card. We know two ninety four pretty well at this point. Uh actually no, there's still a lot of room to flesh that out. We know the main event. That's Makashev and Oliveira for the lightweight belt. We know Kosta and Shemaev. Also at middleweight, um, Nasruddin Imovov and Ikram Alexkerdov. Not a bad fight. So, a lot of... There's still time to... That still needs to be fleshed out, but we know, like, the fight's near the top of the card. Um, yeah. Do we still not know anything for 293? I don't know anything major. I, mean, I bring that up because it's the Australia card, so... We know some of the stuff, but like all the fights that are currently announced for it are a few of those maybe could kind of help flesh out the main card of a pay-per-view, but there's not a lot of like pay-per-view main card fights there. If that distinction makes sense. Um some pretty good fights there so far. I mean, we have the usual spate of like oceanic area fighters, but there's a few of those fights that are pretty good. So we'll have to see if they can if they can get like the pay-per-view portion locked down, but that's still a little bit off. Um I think we already talked about the Blades and Almeida fight. Alright, yeah, that's all the current fight announcements that I have listed, so Let's check Twitter, see if anything crazy has happened, and if not, we will do plugs and get out of here. Alright, no, so, plugs. I got two podcasts this week coming up. Monday at noon Eastern, there will be a special TV party with myself and Mark Radlich. You see, a few months ago, Mark got wind of a, of a project, something coming out, something that was... Uh, Salacious, 
scandalous. Surely it would be the the talk of the world. Uh, it's a crappy project on, that was on HBO, now Max, called The Idol. And there were rumors about all the, again, the salacious, the sensationalistic, the disgusting, whatever. And Mark, being Mark, and I love Mark, he's my best friend, said, thought to himself, surely I will find stuff in this pile of crap. There will be something interesting here, though, something worth talking about. I wish to dive headfirst into this pool of fetid monstrosity and something, there will be something good here. And he asked everyone, this is happening right around my birthday, who would like to do this with me? Who will gift me the greatest gift I will receive this year, the ability to talk about the idol. Nobody said anything. So he poked me a few times and said, come on, do a thing, do a thing with me. It's my birthday, come on, do a thing. And I said, Mark, I don't want to. I don't think anything good will come of this. But you are my best friend, so fine. And then it came out. And... Mark watched it, and he said to me, after I'd seen the first, like, episode and a half, he said, you know, this isn't even interesting. You have an out if you want it. And I said, no, no, no. If you'd got to me with that before I started the first episode, maybe. But I committed. I committed to do the thing, and I'm a man of my word. So we will talk about it Monday. It will be one of the shortest podcasts Mark and I have ever done, and he and I can talk. My goal is to get out of there in under 20 minutes, so we'll see what happens. We'll be talking about that giant nothing burger of... I'll save my unduly purple prose for that moment, I suppose. Then Tuesday at Damn You Hollywood on the regular time, 9 p.m. Eastern, we will be talking about Haunted Mansion, the Disney movie that is flopping hard. I will eat an appropriate amount of crow for unfairly predicting the drop in Barbie's... Uh, second week, and you know what? I am over being upset about that. I This whole experience with the Barbie movie was a nice reminder that no one cares. And you know what? I occasionally need to be reminded of that, that of my utter irrelevance in the grand scheme of things. As far as as far as the entertainment complex is concerned, nobody cares what I want, what I like. Nobody makes things for me. And you know what? I can live with that, I suppose. I just need... It's a matter of expectation. If I half think, like, oh, I might like this. This might appeal to my interests. I will only be disappointed. And I occasionally have to, again, just be reminded, nope, no, nope, no. Nope. On the rare occasion you find something you like, it is accidental. So. But we will be talking about that. Uh, that's myself, Mark Radulich, Alexis Haina, and I believe Dorian Price will be joining us as well. So, tune in for that, if you're interested. I think that's it for me this week. Um, as far as other podcasts go. Because I don't think I'm on... I don't think this is me. On the Turtles... No, that's a re-air. Okay, whatever else we're doing will be next week. 
I'm doing next week. Okay, no, that's a rear. Sorry. My mistake. Leave it alone. Uh, yeah, so that's my podcast schedule this week. Those two shows. Elsewhere, I will be covering MLW stuff whenever they put it out around Thursday. You can look, read that. And I cover WWE SmackDown every Friday. This week is the go-home show for uh, SummerSlam. Kind of a tepid build, if I'm going to be honest. Um, not a lot of buzz. Not a lot of hype. Not a lot of momentum going into SummerSlam this year. So We'll see what happens. But that's my read on it, at least, uh, for the moment. So We'll see. And, of course, Saturday, UFC and ESPN 50. So stop by, say hello to any and all of those projects. I always appreciate it. All right. Next week, we will be back here. We will review UFC on ESPN 50. And, yeah, we will preview UFC on ESPN. ESPN plop proper again. So we will preview UFC on ESPN 51. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's rough. That's rough. I don't hate the main event. It's uh, Vicente Luca and Rafael Dos Anjos. Like, I, I don't hate it. But... That is, this is a profoundly uninspiring card. Good grief. All right, full preview next week. Come back and laugh at my pain. All right. Thank you, as always, everyone, for tuning in. I appreciate all of you. Thank you. That's really all I have to say on the subject. So, until next time, as always, stay safe out there and continue to be well, be safe, and behave.